Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I want to welcome Mika Ahuvia as our guest. My name is Rachel Edelman. I'm your host today, and I've invited Mika to speak about her most recent book on angels and ancient Jewish culture. Mika Ahuvia holds the Marsha and J. Glazer Endowed Chair in Jewish Studies at the University of Washington and is Associate Professor of Classical Judaism at the Stroom Center for Jewish Studies in the Henry M. Jackson School of International Studies at U of W. She completed her doctorate at Princeton University in 2014 and is the author of On My Right, Michael, On My Left, Gabriel, Angels in Ancient Jewish Culture, published by UC Press, 2021. We will be speaking about this book today. She also co-edited the volume Placing Ancient Texts, The Rhetorical and Ritual Use of Space, published by Morrissey Back in 2018. And she has published book chapters and articles on ancient ritual magic, gender, and rabbinic literature, and late antique archaeology, among other topics. Welcome, Mika. Thank you so much for having me. I'm going to open with a very general question. What drew you to this topic? So while I was in graduate school, uh, one of my teachers, a specialist in Roman religion, happened to mention that ancient Romans were really afraid of stumbling into spirits, divinities, and gods around them, right? Just like stumbling into a glen and seeing a goddess. Um, In another class on late antique Christianity, Peter Brown mentioned that ancient Christians pictured angels hovering about 40 feet above the ground, right? Like the height of the Princeton Chapel. And those two statements kind of about the location of these invisible beings really stuck with me. And when I read kind of Seth Schwartz's offhand remark that Jews lived in a world full of angels, I just, I wanted to know more. Like, what did that mean for Jews? Where were angels and spirits for ancient Jews? That's what started this project. Okay. So maybe give us a definition of what angels are. Yes. So this is um, a tough question because even if you just limit yourself to just the biblical sources or just the Jewish sources, there isn't one easy definition of angels that cuts across time in all Jewish cultures. But I would, you know, to make a generalization, I would say that based on my analysis, Um, Angels were conceptualized as these powerful intermediary beings, were subordinate to God, and acted in alignment with divine will. Um, So they were were imagined as present with the people of Israel, carrying their prayers to the heavens, and they were always available to faithful Jews in their times of need. Angels cared about Jews. Jews believed that angels cared about them. Um, Ancient Jews imagined that there were angels of good and angels of evil, that is, angels that monitored evil in the world. Um, You know, people today, I think, think of angels as like angels and demons as inseparable. But for ancient Jews, angels were really independent of the demonic realm and had a lot of work to do, not just dealing with uh, demons. Um, So angels had abodes in the heavens, right? Like they lived in the heavenly realms, but they also had obligations here on earth. Um, one kind of interesting factoid about angels is almost all of my sources mention that angels were made of fire they were fiery mm-hmm. beings. So, so they're like, they're changeable. I mean, they're usually invisible to ancient Jews, uh, which is very interesting. Cause I think we modern people are very obsessed with like, well, what do angels look like? Right. <laughs> like the empirical evidence for them, but we just don't see that preoccupation among ancient Jews. They just, they knew that angels were around them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in the form of some kind of fire, but amorphous and invisible. Really interesting. Um, so, I mean, I was raised on 
Wissenschaft, right, the scientific study of Judaism. And it seems that that this whole notion of angels, the standard accepted academic practice was, oh, that's not Jewish, right? Jews really don't do angels, right? There's no angelology. There's no... Um, one of my, the chapters in my book is on um, the, the myth of the fallen angels. And there, there's a direct statement in the Mechelta ascribed to um, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, I believe, that said anybody who believes that the men, the, the, the B'nai Elohim are angels who cohabited with women, that person should be excommunicated. So um, what is it, right? There's two, it seems to be two different strata of polemics against angel angels and one is the ancient one and one is the modern one let's unpack what it, what what is this this wow we don't believe in angels what is that all about what is this tell me a little bit about wissenschaft and their attitude to to the study of angels in judaism and then let's go back to the rabbinic sources okay okay yeah i pondered this uh this tension for years um and i think in a way it might be easier to start with the the ancient biblical sources, and then get to the, to the Wissenschaft. Um, so I think in part, this tension goes back to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter four, verse 19. I'll just read it really quick. And when you look up to the sky and behold the sun and the moon and the stars, the whole heavenly host, you must not be lured into bowing to the, down to them or serving them, right? These, the Lord, your God allotted to other peoples, everywhere under the heavens, but you, the Lord took and brought out of Egypt, right? To be his very own people, right? So I see this kind of tension between like, hey, are the sun, moon, and stars angels? And apparently ancient people said, yes, right? These are angelic beings. And the leadership of the ancient Jews telling Jews, those angels aren't for you, mm-hmm. right? And yet, they are divine beings. So and there, there is an acknowledgement already um, right in Deuteronomy that there are these divine beings, but Israel shouldn't be focused on them. Mm-hmm. And that's a difficult tension, you know, because of course Deuteronomy and, and the Shema also command the Jews to, to love, to love God, right? With all their heart and all their soul and all their might. And how do you love and trust in a God when that God has failed you? And I think this was a really serious and difficult question for Jews after the Jewish wars in 70 and 135 CE. And I think sometimes Jewish studies scholars don't know how to take that catastrophe seriously and to think about how ancient Jews related to God very deeply. Hmm. So let's fast forward to the, to the Wissenschaft. Can I just pause yeah. on that? I just want to mm-hmm. reflect back what you're saying, because mm-hmm. I, I, I don't think I picked this up, but you're suggesting that the shift to away from Deuteronomy's sort of um, hardline monotheism is was a way of dealing with the tragedy of the destruction of the temple and the the proliferation of belief in angels as intermediary intermediaries is one way of coping with um, the absence of God or the absence of the feeling of it. That's really fascinating. Okay. Pause. Yeah. Okay. Go to Wissenschaft. <laughs> well, I, I should so just, this just question. To, yeah. I respond to you. Like I, you know, the proliferation of angels, as you mentioned, does go back to this myth of the fallen angels, right? Which seems to go back to at least 300 BCE, 200 BCE, like Alexander the Great's armies, right? Marching through, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, the Levant and, you know, the ancient Jews being confronted with this mighty force that, you know, it just leaves them kind of battered between these Greek empires. So, you know, it, it's not just the Jewish wars, but I, you know, I do think that this is a tension that Jews are living with, right? And, and some Jews are more monotheistic, right? There's always, I think, going to be some Jews that have an easier time maintaining this like piety with, with one God and other Jews who are just more comfortable with, a monotheistic God that has a multitude of intermediaries that they can deal with. Mm. And they don't see that as being in conflict with their monotheism and commitment to mm-hmm. God. So, yeah, um, it, it is, I think, such a fascinating topic. But what but what did the Wissenschaft do with, do with this? I, I think we have to remember that 
you know, we, the Jewish studies scholars, um, you know, that rabbis, but even like ordinary Jews, like none of us operate in a vacuum, right? No, no person, even if they're not Jewish, right? Like all Jews by virtue of being Jews have always had to define themselves against and through Christianity or other like more dominant cultures and against societal expectations. So for the Wissenschaft, the question was like, how do you make Judaism a modern religion? Right? That's the question facing assimilated uh, German scholars of Jewish studies. How do you prove to Christians, to Protestant Christians in particular, that Judaism fits within the modern nation state? Right? The Jewish practice and, rit- and Jewish ritual life fits within the modern nation state. And I think to make that argument, um, Jewish thinkers, right, like Moses Mendelssohn, they described Judaism um, in terms of the law, right? Like Moses Mendelssohn right, famously said, you know, if, well, if Christianity is a religion of dogma, Judaism is a religion of law, right? Those are both very reductive generalizations about Christianity and Judaism. But for some reason, Jews have really <laughs> adopted and internalized this Judaism is a religion of law and nothing else. <laughs> mm-hmm. right? And I still hear rabbis of all denominations right, define themselves in these terms as if Judaism has always defined itself as a religion of law. And I think it's so sad because it's like well, Judaism has always been what Jews do. And Jews have always done a lot more than just debate rabbinic law in the study house. Um, so I guess that's that's the intervention of my book. Judaism is what Jewish people do. And I really mean that in the inclusive and expansive sense. I mean, men, I mean, women, all ancient people, these the ones that align themselves with the Hebrew biblical tradition and heritage, whether they're within the rabbinic orbit or not. So it's true. Judaism just have this very rich legal and ritual tradition, but it's also a relationship-centered religion, relationship-centered on God, but also on angels, also on relating to the heroes in the biblical stories. Um, and you know what? That might embarrass some people, but these relationships are Jewish too. Uh-huh. Well, that brings me to the opening of your introduction. Um, you open with the song, the famous song, Shalom Aleichem, sung on Friday night in traditional Jewish homes. And I wanted to ask you about the background to this song, because obviously it reflects, if it's what Jews do, it reflects a belief that there are some kind of angels being addressed, Um, right? So tell me, who does the song address? When was it composed? What are the rabbinic sources for this song? Um, and, And why on Shabbat? Right. What's what's the relationship to Shabbat and angels? Yeah. So I chose to begin the book with this song because it would always surprise me how much Jews object, objected to the idea that angels were Jewish. And then I would just ask them, what about Shalom Aleichem? Have you, do you sing this song? And so many of them were taken aback because they sing it, but they never really think about the words. And the words, of course, kind of welcome the angels in the home uh, really assume that they're there, ask for their blessing, you know, assume that angels are coming and going from the Jewish household on Friday evening. Um, now, the success and popularity of this song may have to do with the melody, which was, com- I love finding this out, that it was composed in Brooklyn in 1918, right? So <laughs> 100 years old. But of course, I know I heard it in, in Israel growing up. I've heard it in Florida, you know, in California, like all over the world, like the song, you know, seems to go back to Mount Sinai, but Um, The melody is only a century old. The words seem to go back to the 17th century. Mm. It's a bit mysterious exactly where, but um, most of the sources I found suggest that it was composed among circles of mystics. And, you know, I think that's, that I think was probably enough. I think some Jewish study scholars go farther and and suggest that it's tied to uh, Babylonian Talmud Shabbat uh, 119b, where a tradition describes angels returning home with a, with a pious Jew, you know, perhaps from synagogue and uh, monitoring their behavior, right? So I can briefly uh, quote this tradition if you like. Please yeah. do, please yeah. do. Uh, I love so, this midrash. <laughs> <laughs> okay. right, so Rabbi Yosef the son of Yehuda said, two ministering angels accompany a man on the eve of the Sabbath from synagogue to his home. 
one good and one evil. And if he, when he arrives at his home, if a lamp is lit and a table is prepared and his bed is covered, the good angel said, may it be like this on another Sabbath too. And the evil angel answers amen against his will. And if it is not, the evil angel says, may it be like this on another Sabbath too. And the good angel answers amen against his will. So yeah, there's a lot going on. Um, I love in this. <laughs> First of all, that, that the angels have the capacity to bless the home. Yeah. Right. Um, may it be like this, or in mm -hmm. a negative sense, right? And may the chaos persist next Shabbat again, right? Yeah. The demonic, and that there are negative, bad angels and good angels, yeah. and that the the angel is forced to bless or say amen against his will. So what does that mean? Uh, it's fascinating. What do you yeah. do with that? Yeah. So, yeah. First of all, people uh, often ask me if the, the good evil angel, um, you know, is a Christian thing. I'm like, well, actually, you know, ancient Jewish sources describe kind of the good and, and bad angels um, on our shoulders. Um, what's interesting here is that um, it seems like the angels can only amplify what you already do. Right. They can't like change what you do, but they kind of like they're the hype people to your left and right. Right. They can yeah, encourage you to more good or encourage you to, to more bad behavior. Um, uh -huh. So I think, you know, this kind of goes back to a conception, you know, among the prophets. Right. That everything is from God. Right. That good and evil is from is from God and that the universe is ultimately just. And for there to be a just universe there has to be right angels that monitor your good behavior, but also angels that are taking note if you're committing transgressions, because ultimately your deeds have to be weighed. So it's not that the the evil angels is like inherently or intrinsically evil. It's that their job is to monitor evil and keep track of it. And obviously we don't like it when people keep track of our sins. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. you know, you don't have to necessarily have a positive relationship uh, with uh, the, the evil angels, uh, but they're necessary to the functioning of the universe. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think you asked about the, the question of will, mm. All right, I pondered this for a while. Um, it does seem to me that angels have to act in alignment with divine will, but that doesn't mean that they uh, don't have feelings about it. And I collected some examples of kind of angels really sympathizing with, uh, with Israel, sympathizing with the Jews and really being disappointed and frustrated sometimes with what's, what happens to the Jews. Yeah. And that goes back to your original point is mm -hmm. they emerge as intermediaries sort of in the wake of the tragedy of the destruction of the, I, I assume mm -hmm. you're talking the second temple, where yeah. there is a need for some kind of intervention. So angels as sympathetic figures, as as able to mediate that absence of God. That's really, really fascinating. I guess there was um, one more part to your question about the yeah. Sabbath, right? I mean, yeah, so, about the Sabbath. Yeah, tell me why are they accompanying them on the Sabbath? Yeah, you know, so right, God's divine work right, in Hebrew is Melacha, right? Mm. And his divine workers mm. are the Malachim, right? So angels in Hebrew is Malachim, and uh, Malach um, Malacha seems to go back to uh, a verb relating to uh, to send out or to do, right? So the, these messengers, so. Of course, according to Genesis, God creates the world for the Sabbath, right? So the creation of the world and the Sabbath go hand in hand. And so divine work is also intrinsically tied to the angels. So I, I do think, you know, all right, Genesis, right? Chapter two, verse one, right? The heavens and the earth are completed with all their multitude, right? Who are the multitude in the heavens, right? Obviously, for ancient Jews, those were the angels are kind of implied already there from the very beginning. So I do think they were there. They were there in the Jewish imagination, and, and they were, like you're saying, more necessary maybe in the aftermath of catastrophe. Mm. Fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Malacha and Malach. Yeah. Mm -hmm. As as emissaries, as sending yes. out. Right. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Um, so in your second chapter, I believe you just mm -hmm. explore Babylonian incantation bowls and amulets. Yeah. <laughs> I guess that's part of your archaeological expertise. So tell me about what these artifacts, um, where were they found? What kind of rituals did they entail? Um, what figures are being invoked? 
yeah. and how prevalent were these these incantation bowls? Yes, yeah, so the incantation bowls um, and the the amulets are they're really exciting artifacts. So my my first chapter is devoted to the incantation bowls from Babylonia, and the second chapter is devoted to um, these necklace amulets from Roman Palestine. Now about incantation bowls, um, they could be as small as cereal bowls, or they could be very large. Um, some people ask me if they're like singing bowls, and and they're not. They're um, you know they're made from ceramic. They're very cheap most of the time, and they have writing. They have text in them um, in Aramaic. Sometimes some quotations of Hebrew, um, and they're written off usually in kind of spirals uh, from the center outward. Um, and if you're into reading fiction, uh, Maggie Anton has really beautiful reimagining of the kind of the performative context um, of these angel of these uh, bowls. Sorry, and um, my book on placing ancient texts, the kind of that coded volume, I really explore the strategies of calling on angels and other beings um, in these incantation bowls because I do think they were performed, and uh, you know, novelists can imagine whatever they want. Like I had to kind of really collect the nitty gritty evidence that these bowls um, were performed in the presence of people who commissioned them. So these are personalized incantation texts. And they apparently, um, Jews, particularly in what's modern day Iraq and Iran, would commission these incantations when they were feeling anxiety. Um, It could be about just the general well-being of their household, uh, it could be a woman who commissioned an amulet because she's she's worried that her husband doesn't love her anymore. She was worried about fertility problems. Um, she's worried about her mother-in-law. I mean, there's so many. That was my favorite. <laughs> I know. Right? <laughs> like, and apparently it was, it was an ancient favorite too. It's the most popular incantation is against in-laws. It's really <laughs> quite funny. And, the, and these incantations against in-laws, they call in the angels. So maybe you don't want to call in God for that. Maybe it feels a little bit petty. But you can definitely call the angels to help you when uh, the in-laws who probably live with you um, are really um, getting on your nerves. Um, so I love these incantations because they are so they're so idiosyncratic. There's someone like, you know, everything else in the, you know, the Jewish canon in some ways. And, you know, so again, they, they call on God. They they call on angels. They call on, um, you know, David and Solomon. And, they, and some of them are just really about the maybe the charismatic ritual practitioner, right? The, the person performing it that makes you feel safe, makes you feel heard, makes you feel like, you know, the angels are going to take care of you. Are the angels called on by names? Yes. Lots oh, and lots of names. What kind of names do you hear? Oh, um, I mean, so my, Michael and Gabriel are always like your most popular <laughs> angels, but mm-hmm. you know, um, some names like Kavshiel, um, Chasdiel, um, you know, so, you know, most scholars think that they were probably made up kind of on the spur of the moment. Some of them are really impossible to pronounce. Um, so some of them seems to be play on, on, the, on the name of God. So there, there's so many. And sometimes, you know, the names of, of the stars, there, there's, and, you know, there's thousands of these. You know, you were asking how prevalent they are. It's, I think one of the things that kind of breaks my heart about this evidence is that the fact that we have the, you know, I think there's over 2,000 that have been identified. I mean, that is so many bowl texts. Um, but we don't know about ancient synagogues, right? And, and that's because of the, you know, the political situation in Iraq and Iran means that any kind of evidence of, uh, of Jewish habitation from late antiquity is, is unlikely to be published and, and we're unlikely to have access to it anytime soon. So the only thing coming out of Iraq and Iran, they're usually through looting in the black market, unfortunately, um, is, is these incantation bowls. So you can find them on eBay. Um, not that I, I do that, but like, that's, that's how they're kind of reaching us. And the question of how prevalent they are is a really fraught question, because what it gets at is, it, it, are, are these typical of Jewish behavior or not? And I think some Jewish studies scholars would be like, no, 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 no. This is like weird superstitious stuff. This is not really Jewish. And again, my take is if Jews are doing it, it's Jewish. So (laughs) Um, yeah, let's, let's take this evidence seriously for what it tells us about the way Jews imagine the world and 
what I love about these incantation bowls is that they show us that Jews aren't monolithic. Even like one person, you know, can behave differently. You know, one time a woman, when she's worried about her husband, she invokes the angels for help. But later you find um, her and her husband commission an incantation bowl together and they only call on God. (laughs) you know so what it's not like she stopped believing in the angels it's not like right now they weren't necessary so I just I love that because I think it's really human yeah so tell me about Sefer HaRazim it was my first time reading about it in your book tell me about this book this composition yeah um so it's written in this really lucid Hebrew you know it's um it was so at least the the introduction to it kind of describes um, this chain of transmission, you know, from Noah, because of course, you know, Noah, just before the flood, <laughs> he lived in a time when uh, the sons of God, those Bnei Elohim, were mating with the daughters of man, right? So he seems to have lived in an age of uh, angels on earth. Um, and an angel named Raziel, right? So Raz means a kind of a mystery, passed him a book of spells. Um, the spells, the spells seem to be more medieval uh, rather than late antique, um, but this book has been translated into English, um, and it's, it's yeah, it's just a really again fascinating study of how, you know, Jews reading Hebrew commission, you know, would um, <laughs> engage in magical practices for wealth, for health, for wooing someone, you know, for love magic, uh, erotic magic. All kinds of, all kinds of uh, ends, and yeah, so again, it's a it, book of spells. Yeah, it's a book of spells. <gasps> How <Yeah>. fascinating! <laughs> How yeah. fascinating! Um, wow, uh, and uh, and it it's and it's pseudo epigraphic, so it's ascribed to this angel Raziel who appeared exactly. to. Noah, but it actually dates to what year? It, you know, we think like maybe the fourth or fifth century, at least the frame mm-hmm. of it, the really beautiful kind of introduction mm-hmm. uh, seems to be late antique. Uh, probably the spells were updated as the manuscript was copied and transmitted by Jews through the medieval period. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you get spells about kind of, you have chariot races, you know, <laughs> what do you do if you want your horse to win? Um, it's, yeah, it's it's a really fascinating spell book, and it really it uses a material object. So it's not just the spoken word that's powerful in Sefer HaRazim. It's kind of what you do with rare exotic ingredients. Fascinating. And the and the names of angels. Or the book is just filled with names of angels. Hmm. Really fascinating. Um. And yet, and yet, and yet, there does seem to be a very strong movement or strain in early Tanaitic sources against the invocation of angels. So you mm-hmm. cite a source where Rabbi Akiva yeah. made this very strong statement who said, anybody who invokes an incantation, mm-hmm. quoting Exodus fifteen twenty six. Every illness that I placed upon Egypt, I will not place upon you, for I am the Lord, your healer. Anybody who utters this quote in an incantation has committed the one of the worst heresies and will never inherit Olam Haba, mm-hmm. will never mm-hmm. go to the other world. Mm-hmm. Um, wow, that's harsh. It's really harsh. Yeah. So what do you think is behind this polemic? You can't invoke this statement in an incantation. What do you think is behind Rabbi Akiva's statement here? So, of course, what's really fun about that statement is that we find it in necklace amulets from Roman Palestine. So, you know, clearly Jews um, are not listening to the rabbis, right? So this Mm. is one of those times we kind of have to read against the text or, you know, see that when the rabbis say you're not allowed to do something, it's because Jews are doing it, right? So it is really fascinating to me that Rabbi Akiva is important in my book because there's lots of statements attributed to him that emphasize relating to God alone, imitating God alone, ignoring the angels. Um, and to me, that just, that just suggests an environment where the rabbi, even within the rabbinic movement, there's a debate about 
how do you relate to God and the angels? So, you know, the, the rabbis had to work that out. And one of my arguments in the book is that over time, they stopped fighting <laughs> the popularity of the angels. And I think by the time of the redaction of the Babylonian Talmud, they were like, okay, Jews believe in angels. How do we use this to get Jews to be good Jews? <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. But Rabbi Akiva is struggling with kind of an arch monotheism, similar to the Deuteronomistic principles, Mm -hmm. um, where intermediaries are problematic. Um, And it's, I mean, we see this in the Haggadah, where the whole Exodus story is said it wasn't me. It wasn't, it wasn't an angel who, or the destroyer Hamashchit, who killed off the firstborn on the, the night of, you know, the, the mm-hmm. night of the Exodus, mm-hmm. God alone, God right. alone, right? Yeah. Um, so, um, so the origin of that is in the Mechilta, and it makes a very strong statement that there was no intermediary in the Exodus in in bringing the Israelites out of Egypt. Now, where does the arch sort of this this I'm going back to that, going back to, so it feels to me that there's something different in that statement in the Haggadah mm-hmm. than what Rabbi Akiva might be saying and maybe what, um, wh- why God alone? What do you think is, is under undergirding that? Yeah. Um, it might be different from Rabbi Akiva's statement, might be different from, mm-hmm. is there is there another yeah. thing working so- here? Yeah, so in chapter three, I kind of try to trace this theme of why are the rabbis denying the existence of the angels or really trying to read the angels out of the Exodus story? Because, you know, if you read the book of Exodus, right, I mean, it's the angels are play very important key roles, right? There's an angel that leads the Israelites through the wilderness. and That's right. Yeah. Yeah, we don't know yeah. what that is. Maybe, it's, <laughs> but it's, yeah, and and God is very you know uh, clear there, right? You obey Him. My name is in Him. Um, so there, it, it, I have to say, like only the only the early rabbis, you know, amongst all the kind of the peoples of late antiquity, seem to be very preoccupied with denying the angels' existence. Mm-hmm. So it's it's very strange, and and I think it was. Kind of sh- probably short-lived, or in this, or it wasn't successful because that's mm. not where Jews went in late antiquity. But clearly, this bizarre reading, you know, what you also alluded to, right, with the the fallen angels, right, with the the sources that say like, oh, how, don't you dare read the Libne Elohim as fallen angels? These are obviously judges. Like they're clearly these are very popular conceptualizations and the rabbis are really worried that that jews will get carried away and so they really try to put a stop to it but i ultimately you know they were unsuccessful mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. do you think it has to do with the role of angels in christianity or in other pseudepigraph you know the svarim the the pseudepigrapha or the i mean it, it's it's possible that that's part of it but but again like angels were were part of you know the hebrew bible you know michael and gabriel are in the book of daniel um you know by late antiquity most jews believed that the the three men that visit abraham at the oak of mamre were Mike were michael gabriel and raphael so mm-hmm. we, we don't need to look to kind of christianity um but i you know i, I do think that in late antiquity, Jewish thinkers felt that they they could talk about angels in Jewish terms, but mm-hmm. clearly they had to convince Jews that God was still on their side because they were living in a reality, you know, under occupation that was very difficult to, I think, reconcile with this belief that God chose them mm. and was committed to them. Hmm. Really interesting. So my favorite chapter of all your chapters was your chapter on Yanai. I don't know if you believe you feel that way about it, but I love that chapter. So, um, so he's a liturgical poet who lived in Palestine in the late fifth, early sixth century. This is your chapter five. Mm-hmm. 
and your prose just soars there. And I want to invite you to share a select passage from one of his pew team, one of his liturgical poems, um, and and explicate it. I'm so glad that you liked Yanai and like this <laughs> this chapter. I mean, I love Yanai. I'm glad that came through. Um, I think in part it's you know when you are dealing with rabbinic sources, you're you're dealing with a really um, highly kind of redacted document that was composed over the centuries, and it's hard to get at a singular voice. And what I love about Yanai is that he's just one Jewish thinker, and he's he's trying to synthesize all of these, everything he knows, right, in his time period, and say something to the people in front of him. Um, and that's, I guess, another thing I really love about Yanai. I could, you read Yanai's poetry, and it, and some of it has been translated into English. I please do check out Laura Lieber's wonderful book, Yanai on Genesis. And you can tell he's he's reciting to a community, a learned community um, in front of them, in front of him. And, you know, and, you know, when you were talking to the general public, you, you just have to be more inclusive. Um, so I like to think of Yanai also as like a sixth century kind of singing sensation. Um, you know, <laughs> I think people today don't think of like the synagogue as the place you go to for great music. But on the other hand, lots of people do go to worship spaces because they love singing, right? And they love singing with others. So um, people who go to synagogue probably know that there are two prayers that are core to the Jewish tradition, right? The Shema and the Amidah. Um, and the Amidah is, of course, you know, 18 benedictions. Um, its origins are very mysterious, but elements of it likely go back to the Second Temple period. And the third benediction in this fixed prayer is about the angels, right? And it quotes um, this vision of Isaiah where he's in the temple and he sees the seraphim praying to God, right? And the seraphim are saying, holy, 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 right? Is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And what's really interesting is if you look at the Amidah, if you look at the 18 prayers altogether, this third one really stands out. It's really unlike all the other benedictions to have this like really long quotation um, it's really unusual, and and it's also the most participatory moment in in the prayer. It's this part of the Jewish prayer that invites everybody to imitate the angels. You're supposed to stand in the posture of the angels and say the same words that they said. So what Yanai did was he took those first three benedictions, kind of ending with the holy, 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 and he would kind of he expanded it into a nine part poem that was tied to like that week's reading from the Torah. So it wasn't just the seraphim saying, holy, holy, holy. It could, you know, be Abraham and, you know, Rachel and Leah and, you know, whoever happened to feature in the, in the lectionary that week. It could be, you know, the priests. It could be the Levites. You know, it's every week was different. And so spending time um, in this body of work was just so, it was really just, it was lovely. <laughs> I'm glad it came across in the chapter. Um, so it was very hard for me to pick one. Um, so I picked two really short um, examples. And I kind of wanted to show how Yanai is tying the holy, holy, holy to particular Jewish practices. Because, you know, you mentioned, of course, angels are popular among Christians um, as well. Um, but in the same time period as Yanai, Christians were telling people to be angelic by being celibate. Like that's how they thought people could achieve, you know, the angelic life um, or the angelic way. And, you know, and that has to do with like, you know, Christian sexual ethics, but certainly Jewish sexual ethics were not that you avoid sex. It's that you engage in, that you procreate within uh, matrimony. So Yanai says um, in this one Kedusha, um, against these three things, which are Shabbat, circumcision and wisdom, they will say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Right? Holy from those keeping the Sabbath. Holy from those observing circumcision. Holy from those reciting the Torah. Right? So who's saying holy here? It's not just the seraphim. It's all Jews who observe the Sabbath. It's all Jews who observe circumcision, which, by the way, isn't just men. Right? In, in antiquity, you know, it was thought that if, if a mother you know, presented her child for circumcision, she is also observing right, the mitzvah. Of circumcision, right? Of course, holy from those reciting Torah. Right? Anybody who, or you know, in another composition, he says anyone who says amen, right? So it's really it's much more inclusive conception of what it's like to say holy and 
participate in the angelic prayer. Mm -hmm. So when we're saying holy, 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 kadosh, 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 mm -hmm. we're imitating the the angels in what we do. We too exactly. are yeah. sanctifying God's name. Yeah. Uh, by keeping sab the Sabbath, by by mm -hmm. circumcising our children, by yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and really and this seems fascinating. To have been, I mean, this seems to have been a Jewish preoccupation. Again, going back to you know the the authors of the, the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? They mm -hmm. were already doing it and you know you know who knows if they were the only ones but it seems to have been a really important preoccupation among ancient jews was to imitate the angels as much as possible and what was important about the the holy 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 is it's one of the only times that a prophet tells us how angels worship god so it seems to be like oh see this is evidence of how god likes to be worshiped so you know jews are like let's do that and it's and it's from this practice that you know it spreads to to Christian circles as well, actually. So this happens to be a shared tradition, but I don't think it makes it any less Jewish, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, fascinating. Um, so, so what do you think, how is this a, a way, uh, if, if we're thinking about angels as intermediaries and the, the Jewish people are invited to imitate the angels, what does this say about their relationship to God? Um, that is through prayer and, and these, these, the, yeah. Tell, mm -hmm. tell us, what do you, what do you think is? Yes. On? So Yanai is, is interesting, right? Because of course um, it's, he's, he's, you know, he's a, he writes liturgical prayers, but of course Jews also uh, pray in private and he doesn't talk about that as much. Um, but if, you know, apparently Jews believe, and we can see this in rabbinic literature, um, that Jews believed that the angels carried their prayers to the heavenly throne room. So, you know, angels have a very important part to play in, the, in relating to God. And sometimes, you know, apparently Jews just found it easier, you know, I don't know if picture picturing is the right word, like conceptualizing angels or focusing on them taking prayers rather than focusing on God directly. So, mm -hmm. you know, I think it, it tells us, you know, about, I think the imagination required to be in a relationship with invisible beings and that it's, it's not easy. It's not something innate. It's something that has to be taught. And, you know, looking at the evidence that I do, you, you can see how each Jewish thinker kind of imagines it in a slightly different way imagines relating to the angels and God in a different way. So I don't think, you know, there wasn't like one right way, which I think is really interesting. But again, these things have to be taught and maybe that, you know, should tell us something about what happens in synagogue today or what happens in worship spaces in general. Like we shouldn't assume that it's just easy for people to walk in and, and pray. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, you have another chapter on the Hechalot literature. So maybe explain to us what that is. Yeah. How does it differ from mainstream rabbinic Judaism? And third question, uh, how are the later Kabbalists and mystics heir to this tradition? Yeah, so Hechalot um, is literally just the heavenly palaces. Um, so this in part kind of goes back to Ezekiel. And the way he imagined the um, the departing chariot of God, the Merkava, the throne of God, um, leaving the temple. And so you have an ancient Jewish tradition that tries to imagine how, um, you know, the seven levels of heaven and how uh, the angels occupy it. And I should, I should state that th this was a hard chapter uh, to write because the people that were engaged in this imagining of the heavenly realms in, in Hechalot literature were exclusively men. Um, and they were men apparently that felt somewhat marginalized uh, from the rabbinic world. Like they didn't have the same authority as you know some of the rabbinic leaders. Um, they seemed to have wanted all the honor and the glory, but with a lot less work. You know, they wanted some angelic shortcuts. Um, they seemed to have lacked the lineage to achieve authoritative positions, but also they looked at all the people around them with a lot of suspicion, like maybe their lineage wasn't good enough either. 
they were radical, they were exclusive, they were esoteric, um, they were possibly more misogynistic than the rabbis. <laughs> and they seem to have not been interested in like the rabbinic rhythms of life. They And they seem to have been dissatisfied with the synagogue because they create this um, th- these prayer books, I, I argue, where they're kind of, they're, they believe that they can be with the angels all the time. They believe they can achieve this level of holiness, this separateness, where they can be in tune with the angels and eventually even command the angels to do their bidding. Um, so they have a kind of a, they have a different approach to the angels than other Jews of the time period. It's more radical approach. They, on the one hand, they make the angels a lot more powerful. On the other hand, they make them a lot more human. Yeah, they're, they have a lot going on. Um, yeah, it's very diff- it was very difficult for me to decide, are they really overconfident in themselves or are they just deeply insecure? You know? <laughs> they're like, they're kind of both. Um, so, I, lo- I love that you, it was clear to me that you really loved Yanai and Hechalot <laughs> literature was more difficult. It was very difficult. Yeah. I was like, do I just leave this out? But I do think that they were so, it's important, I think, to acknowledge that radicals shift the ability to imagine what's possible Mm. and angels become a lot more common in Jewish mysticism um, over the medieval period. And so even though Echelot eventually falls out, Kabbalah becomes way more popular. um, I do think that this emphasis on on, on, um, the multiplicity of the angels, I don't know. I, I do think that the Echelot mystics played a part in that. Yeah. So um, there's one statement um, that I totally love. Remind me who this is. But whenever anybody invokes something or speaks something, he sends out an angel. So that's a mystical statement. Explain who said that and what does it mean? And how is this a new configuration of what an angel is? Yeah, so this is from I think the 17th century. So this is kind of you're getting me out of my my area of uh, expertise. But let's see, uh, Luria's leading disciple Chaim uh, ben Joseph Vital, right, who died in 1620, wrote that every word that is uttered creates an angel. Right, when a man leads a righteous and pious life, studies the law, prays with devotion, then angels and holy spirits are created from the sounds which he utters. And these angels are the mystery of the Magidim, and everything depends on the measure of one's good work. So, <laughs> I love that. I just love that. I want. I want to write that on my wall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah that, that your every um, intention creates an angel. So, I mean, I think you can relate that back to like the the good and evil angel on our shoulders, are amplifying what we do. Yeah, everything that you say has an impact on the angelic world and i think that makes the world a lot less lonely mm. you know but it's a little bit like jl austin's speech acts oh no, <laughs> yeah you're creating you're creating yeah, a reality yeah. with your speech exactly um but the yeah. idea that that then angels aren't really independent beings who are cre- mm-hmm. creating the you know acting out of the will of god but but mm. actually something that you are um creating yeah you are an agent agent behind those angels um those in, invisible effects on the world mm-hmm. i love that notion i just I, I was very enthralled by that um yeah, yeah. and then so, you know in centering kind of the human agent there I, mean, I think you can that seems to me like a sign of of modernity mm, exactly you know? yeah because it's a shift away from the kind of the communal emphasis and away from God's agency in creating the world to like, what are you doing in the mm-hmm. world? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how are the Kabbalists and um, mystics heir to earlier traditions? Yeah. So again, Kabbalah, <laughs> I, I was very afraid to read Kabbalah. I was afraid it would just like overtake my entire book. <laughs> my way of looking at things. Um, but Kabbalah is of course a lot more exegetical, right? It's focused on uh, interpreting the Torah, right, through other sections of the Torah and through other uh, parts of the Talmud. And I think it is important to remember that Kabbalah becomes 
really popular and really leaps into the public sphere exactly when the Talmud is banned in Italy. Mm. So, so Yaakov Dweck has written about the scandal of Kabbalah. But from what you know, I understand, like it's Kabbalah becomes necessary at a time when other parts of uh, Jew, Jewish learning are kind of forbidden in public, where Jews aren't allowed to teach about them in public. Um, so, in it's it's a very different point in time. Halot literature is from the 6th century. Again, it's focused on just imagining kind of the heavenly palaces. It's focused on hymns um, that center on the holy, holy, holy. Um, It's focused on the powers that can be granted to you if you reach the heavenly realms. So this is very different than focusing on um, proper exegesis um, of the Torah, right, as bequeathed through the Zohar and as, you know, related to the medieval learning um, about the spheres and, you know, all these really wonderful aspects of Kabbalah that I know much less about. (laughs) Yeah. 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 And yet, and yet they, they, there's a way in which angels get amplified in interesting ways in the mystical tradition. Um, Okay. So you've done an amazing job with this book and I think you push back at um, the establishment in in Jewish studies that believes that angels, that makes, you know, that, oh, that's not part of Judaism. <laughs> yeah. No, no. This is what Jews do. And they're doing mm-hmm. things that are very interesting, um, different than dogmatic statements that have come out of um, the scientific study of Judaism. And um, and you're showing all sorts of different aspects uh, on, on what angels were thought to be and could do and how they operated in the world. Um, so I want to ask you now, what, what kind of work are you doing now? What's your research focused on? Are you working on a book, papers? Tell me, tell me yeah. where you are. Yeah. So, you know, I'm about to start a year of sabbatical. Uh, I have to admit, I am totally focused on recovering from this year that we've had <laughs> right oh, now, <laughs> but um, I'm still I'm still uh, working on the angels a little bit. Um, I was asked to kind of write an article about, you know, the lived experience of religion. How is it that we as scholars can get at the experience of ancient Jews? So I'm going to be thinking more um, about that. I want to think more about the late antique context of the angels. So my conclusion kind of talks about, you know, not just what Jews believed about the angels, but what are Christians doing? What are Muslims doing? What are Mandeans, Romans doing? So I think I might kind of expand that a bit more. Um, I have an article coming out this fall about Jews that pictured angels in, as feminine beings, which was really important to me to put out there. Um, and yeah, I think right now um, in this coming year, I'll be thinking a lot more about Jewish women and their contributions to uh, Jewish culture, right? Not, not just the angels that are ignored, but often also uh, Jewish uh, women and their contributions. and. Yeah, I'll be trying to write a more full history of the Jews, you know, using sources that have been neglected so far. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really, it's been a pleasure to encounter your work. And thank you so much for being our guest on New Books in Jewish Studies. Thank you so much. 